Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on, what is it, Saturday, October 27th, 2018, starting at 4.04 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 177th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Austin Kopic about the concept of zodiac sign cusps, uh, whether they're real, and what happens when you're born on a cusp. Uh, hey, Austin, thanks for joining me for this. Hey, Chris. Hey, so this is, yeah, this is a good topic. This is a topic I've been meaning to do for a while, so I'm actually glad to have you. I thought you would be the perfect person for this because of your approach that's similar to mine in terms of having a strong background both in modern astrology and ancient astrology. And I thought we could uh, try to approach this question both from a modern and a traditional standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I was really, I was confused at first when you proposed this because I thought you were talking about house cusps. Right. Um, <laughs> and then right. when I understood what your idea was, I was like, oh, that's actually great because there's such a a wealth of traditional ideas about cusps and exactly what they mean and don't mean. And it's one of the, you know, it's one of those few things that's talked about all over the place, you know, in a sun sign context that they, that we can actually bring a lot of the literature to bear on as well as our own experience and practice. Yeah. And, and so that's a good point that we're not talking about house cusps. This isn't an episode on, on house division or anything related to that. We're talking about zodiac sign cusps and the concept of being quote unquote, born on a cusp and what that means and some of the issues surrounding that that have sort of come up in pop astrology over the past few years. So um, I didn't realize that this was like a thing or that th this was a topic. I started seeing it come up maybe a year, year and a half, maybe two years ago, where what I was seeing is I was seeing more professional astrologers and, and sometimes intermediate or advanced astrologers responding to a trend that they were seeing in pop astrology where this new sort of concept emerged surrounding zodiac sign cusps. And initially, I didn't understand why people were pushing back on it so strongly as they were. And what I was hearing is people were rejecting the idea that there's such thing as a cusp, or they were saying that cusps aren't real or other things like that. And at first, I didn't really understand what they were trying to say or why they were doing that. And what I realized later is that a new sort of concept or that some sort of hybrid concept had emerged from pop astrology as a result of some of the ambiguity surrounding sun sign dates. So maybe let's take the, start this from the top. So one of the things that sometimes people don't realize is that sun sign astrology only became popular really over the course of the past century, especially from the mid to late 20th century. Sun sign astrology you know, became a popular thing in pop culture. And everybody knows their sun sign, which is the sign of the zodiac that the sun was in on the day that they were born. But there's an issue with this concept because the dates very near the start and end point vary uh, based on the calendar because the calendar is not exactly aligned with the astronomy. So there's some ambiguity when your sun sign date is listed, where sometimes it'll list like, a range of dates or the dates will change from one list to another or something like that basically right yeah you i mean and you can see that um in most like newspaper newspaper-esque columns it'll be like you know aries um march or you know march 21st through 23rd to april you know whatever 
because of the right because the Gregorian calendar is not an exact um, astronomical measure of where the planets are in the 360 degree circle. And we've got our leap years, you know, the the days of the year aren't even. And so, yeah. And so it moves around a day or so. Right. So for example, what would, we're in Scorpio right now. We just, the sun just went into Scorpio a few, what days ago. What are the dates traditionally given for Scorpio? Do you know the off the top of your head? Um, let's, uh, oh, I mean, like yeah. on, on Planet Watcher, for example, this year we have it listed as October twenty third through November twenty second, and so that's that's the time when the sun the sun will be moving through the sign of the zodiac known as Scorpio. And if somebody was born during that time frame, then the sun would be in that sign of the zodiac, so their quote unquote sign or their sun sign would be Scorpio. I mean that's an easy way to to put it, right? Generally right. speaking, and, and so most of the time there's there's a little wiggle room because there has to be right twenty second, twenty third, depending on the year is implied. And so someone say someone you know who's born on the twenty third sees that and they're like, oh, which one am I? Right. right. Oh, I'm a cusp creature, right? And you right, were cause... saying that there's actually been. Uh, not just as an idea, but that people have started putting out delineations for like, oh, well, you're on the cusp. You have these qualities, which are distinct from a Libra or, you know, a sun in Libra or a sun in Scorpio. Yeah. So, and that's really the issue we're going to talk about primarily today is that because these dates that are given are approximate. So, so part of the issue is that in pop astrology, that's all you know, is you just have those list of dates let's say from you know october 23rd to november 22nd but then the question becomes well if i was born on november 22nd does that mean i'm a scorpio or i'm a sagittarius and the answer in advanced astrology is that you have to determine your exact birth time you calculate your full birth chart on a website like astro.com and then you know that the sun is either actually going to be placed in at the very end of scorpio or the very beginning of sagittarius let's say for example if you know your your exact birth time, so advanced astrology is a little bit more precise, right? Well, and that's and I think uh, you're talking about uh, some of uh, people doing uh, serious professional astrology. Be like, no, cusps don't exist. You're either born the sun is either in one sign or another. We can me- measure it down to a millionth of a degree. It's on one side of the line or other, and so that's where. That response is coming from because the the sun's and any planet's position will be on one side of the cusp or the other, right? Right. So advanced astrologers know that, and so they're responding to the pop astrology, which is necessarily approximate. But the problem that's happening is coming from this ambiguity in the pop astrology surrounding the dates. There's been this what seems like a relatively new development where instead of saying that. You're one or the other, and there's some ambiguity surrounding that. It's sort of shifted, it seems like, over the past maybe few years, or maybe it's been the past few decades. I don't know how long this has been going on for, but it's become, I think, more prominent, certainly, over the course of the past few years, where now there's some websites and there's some like pop astrology sites that say it's not that you're one or the other, but that it's both, or that you will feel the qualities of both, and that somehow there's overlap between the signs of the zodiac, or that the Meanings of the signs around the beginning or ends actually merge, so that you get um, merged sort of hybrid delineations. So, for example, astrology.com has an article titled "Zodiac Cusp Signs" that gives delineations for 
if you're an Aries Taurus cusp, if you're a Taurus Gemini cusp, if you're a Gemini Cancer cusp, and so on and so forth. Right. So treating it almost like a whole separate thing. Right. Like are you a, a Scorpator or are you twin crabs or um, right. <laughs> a pair of fish-tailed rams? <laughs> so the answer is that if you're born on a cusp, you're a monstrous hybrid. No, right. kidding. Uh, Piquarius was actually a very early early episode of the astrology podcast was one that Patrick came up with, but that was actually related to the constellations and the fact there's some overlap there. Yeah, it we'll, would be one fish pouring the other fish out of its aquarium. Right. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. So, so that's the issue though, is so now this is for most professional oh. astrologers, that's a new development, the idea oh, that there actually, would be- Actually, sorry, I want to jump in. I remember, and I don't remember the book, but I remember being mm. like 20 years old and seeing some like, one of the many like big book O astrology that you know they're meant as coffee table books. And yeah. I remember looking, you know, I knew my rising and um, I remember there was a special delineation for the cusps there. And it said that the uh, Cancer Leo cusp was the cusp of power. And I was like, Okay, yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll At least it, the the it's better than the cusp of crushing defeat, right? Right, right. Um, yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. Then, I mean, we didn't research this that thoroughly in terms of the modern development, so that might be an interesting research project or paper for somebody to do at some point in terms of when did some of this start happening and how far back does it go versus how recent is it? But from our vantage point, it does seem like this treating it that there's a full merging of the signs at the cusps does seem like a relatively recent phenomenon on some level right well it's it's got to be it's at at uh at its most possibly ancient it would be 20th century right just because right. sun sign astrology itself isn't really does only goes back to like the 1940s or something yeah, I don't. I don't think um, even night. I don't think like Safariel was writing almanacs with uh, <laughs> with um, uh, was it Piquarius uh, interpretations or right. uh, I don't think Lily was doing a whole lot of that. So I think at, again, at its eldest, twentieth century, it's a it's a product of sun sign astrology. Sure, and and it seems to come out of confusion largely surrounding those dates for the zodiac sign things and for people not. Having moved to the next step in, in advanced astrology yet, which is actually casting their birth chart for their specific birth time, which will tell you that your son is either in one sign or the other. But despite that, um, part of the compounding issue or the issue that really compounds this is that some people that are born close to a cusp, let's say where their sun sign is close to a cusp, really do sometimes report feeling like both signs. And so part of the issue here that's reinforcing this is there's some people that when they read those delineations or they read that there might be something to cusps where it might be both, some people actually do really resonate with that or identify with the traits of both signs. And the question then becomes, why is that? Or what is the answer to, to why that's happening? And the most obvious answer that I think all astrologers immediately jump to, and anybody I've talked to you know, immediately goes to this answer, is that if you're born with the sun in one zodiac sign, there's a pretty good chance that Venus and Mercury could be in the adjacent sign since Venus and Mercury are two personal planets that never get more than one sign away from the sun. And well, so oftentimes- Venus can get two, right? Yeah, it can get two signs. Sorry, you're right. I misspoke. So Venus can get two signs and Mercury can get only one sign away from the sun. But yeah, they're, so they're always close. So the chances are very high. 
Right. So you you ver- will very frequently get cases where somebody has their sun in Leo, but they have their Mercury and Venus in Virgo, or they have their sun in Sagittarius, but their Venus and Mercury in Scorpio or something like that. Yeah, all the time. And that's not even count like and that's not even counting the other planets. Right. right? Like it's just, the- it, it's just that Mercury and Venus are really likely to be there, but Jupiter and Saturn or Mars could be there or Pluto or you know, whatever. So the chances of there being something in that next or previous sign is quite great. Right. And so that becomes really relevant because then that could be then, or for most astrologers, that's usually the explanation that they will immediately jump to or, or look to when they cast the actual chart. And that you'll often see when somebody says that they actually really strongly feel like one sign, even though their sun sign is something else, it's often because there's other factors in the chart that are really drawing things in that direction. So most astrologers, I think that's their initial attempt to answer and rationalize why somebody might feel like a cusp delineation that's blending both of them is accurate. It's because of other chart placements or because in a person's actual birth chart, you're not just your sun sign, you actually have multiple planetary placements in different signs of the zodiac. Yeah. you know, Now that I'm thinking about it, with Mercury, if you're within the first or last degree of a sign, you're fully 50% likely to have Mercury in either the next or previous sign, right? Because it doesn't even get 30 away. And if you're at the cusp, then 50% in the next sign if you're at the end, and then 50% in the sign before if you're at the beginning. So God, yeah, I didn't even calculate it until this moment. Even Mercury is a 50% chance if you're on a cusp. Right. So that's huge. So and 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 maybe we should explain why that is. I mean, if the sun, even in just let's say purely modern astrology, often is associated with like the ego and other things like that. Mercury is often associated with the intellectual facilities, or at least the facility of communication and the way that the person speaks and communicates what's inside of them in some way, right? Yeah. And I would I would add to that um, that Mercury is not only the external deliverer of speech, it's it also has it also has a lot to say about how a person thinks about their experience. You know, the sun is a more unfiltered, uh, unstructured uh, light, whereas Mercury is encoding it. And if the, you know, let's say you're, you know, you have the sun in the last degree of Pisces, but you have Mercury in Aries. So you're literally encoding everything and speaking about it in, a, in an Aries-y way. Um, and you don't have the perspective of a whole chart, then absolutely you're going to think that you're a, a, a fish ram. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you literally are like a blend of those, like your psyche or whatever it is about you that is representative of who you are in this life does end up having a blend of different, or not a, let's not say a blend, it's different elements of those signs end up blending together on some level to create the different components of your personality. Yeah, absolutely. Right. There might be like the core of self, but if you're always thinking and talking like this other thing, and you think that you need to define yourself in terms of one symbol, then you're going to have to include that. Right. Um, and that's really, even just like externally, that can be even more notable. For example, like especially with certain combinations, like if somebody has like their sun in Scorpio, but their Mercury's in Sagittarius, you know, that person communicates and sometimes thinks in a way that's much differently externally so that they might not come off like a Scorpio, let's say initially. Because the way that they're actually communicating with you is so much more like, let's say, Sagittarian. 
Right. You're not going to get that. You're not going to get that like sort of sneaky brooding um, stereotype quality associated with with Scorpio with a Sagittarius Mercury. You know, Sag Mercury is much more like a bullhorn. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's really the crux of the issue. And this where this is something that's often clarified for the vast majority, I think, of people just by knowing more than their sun sign or knowing more about astrology than just sun signs and realizing that there's other components and there's other factors going on. But the broader question, the broader discussion I wanted to have with you once we establish that baseline is, is that all all it is or is there more? Like, is, for example, is there any traditional or practical validation of the idea of sine cusps? Or, you know, what do we do with sine cusps? Does sine cusps have any meaning or any relevance that we should still talk about once we've cleared away the basic answer to that question? Is there any sort of more nuanced discussion that we need to have beyond just saying, just rejecting the idea that sine cusps are a thing? Because that's the, that's the concern I have is that. The pushback is almost going too far where it's saying there's absolutely no symbolic significance to sine cusps. And that's not that's not quite true, either from a like a modern practical standpoint or even traditionally, if you go back and look at the astrological tradition, there are some striking ways that the beginning and end of signs are often interpreted in different astrological traditions. Yeah, they're they're significant boundaries. And when you come up close to a boundary, you've just crossed it. That's much more so that that's a that's a special position relative to just being in the middle of of an area. The difference between just being in like in a country, like I'm in the United States, but if I just crossed in from Canada or Mexico, I'm going to have a very particular experience of the United States, right? Or if I'm let's say I'm taking a trip to Vancouver and I'm literally waiting in line um, to get across the border, right? That that's that's different. The framing is very different. And, you know, what we found with just a little bit of research is that um, astrologers from a number of different points in history and on the map uh, agree entirely. They don't necessarily all agree with each other, but there are a lot of special conditions that are framed around those sign boundaries. Right. I love that analogy that you just gave. That's such a great analogy for this issue to me, the idea of it being like the border between two countries, because on the one hand, it's like that border is clear and you are in one country or you're in another, and that's pretty straightforward and there's no overlap there in in practical terms. But there's also like the phenomenon of like like border towns. Where yeah. the sort of there's there's like cultural rubbing off in these sort of border towns where you can clearly see the the influence of the adjacent um, country. Like I'm thinking of like especially like the Texas Mexico border, and sometimes even like minor things like culinary influences. Like you know the idea of like Tex-Mex like food, for example, as being That's- like a weird. Not weird, <laughs> but a, no, a it's, hybrid it's, a hybrid food. Yeah, it's cusp food, <laughs> right? No, that that's really good. Yeah, as I was t- I was saying earlier, um, my sort of go to answer when this would come up when I was teaching the zodiac um, would be the the country analogy. I'd be like, okay, so if you're at the very end of a sign, you live right next to the border, you see people from over the border all the time, you're familiar with them, but you're still subject to the laws of the country that you live in, right? right. You know, that's an important one, maybe to start with 
um, when I was talking to Lisa about this, Lisa Scheim about this recently, I mean, she pointed out one of the differences that is very stark that's worth, you know, starting on is just that in one sign of the zodiac, it's going to be ruled by, you know, the entire sign will be ruled by one planet. Whereas when you move to the next sign of the zodiac, that entire sign will be ruled by a completely different planet. And so in that way, there is a stark difference between one sign of the zodiac and another, both in a qualitative sense as well as in a practical sense in terms of how astrologers work with the signs of the zodiac in, in birth charts or other types of astrological charts. Yeah, we're going to say, what's that planet's ruler in any basic thorough chart analysis, right? When we're interpreting any planet, we're like, okay, who rules the ruler or excuse me, who rules this planet? Where's its place? What it's, what's its position and condition? And so the answer to that changes at that zero degree mark. Right. And, and so that that's part of what I was trying to communicate uh, in a non-technical way by saying, what law are you subject to? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're at the, if you're at 2949 Pisces, you're still subject to the law of Jupiter. If you're at zero one Aries, even though Pisces, even though you can reach out and touch Pisces with your hand, you're now under, you're now in Mars's domain. Yeah. And that's a huge shift. I mean, that's a good one. Pisces versus Aries where you go from being ruled by Jupiter in a water sign to suddenly Mars in a fire sign, that's a huge shift qualitatively. Yeah. And so, you know, what I think both of us, I found um, at different points in different places in the tradition is that um, a lot of astrologers using different different and similar frameworks have ways, uh, They there's an agreement that that's a confusing place like mm -hmm. let you know like there's the you know like there are there are borders that are walled right just to stick with this but there are also places in the border let's say between Canada and the US where you could just be wandering through the woods and suddenly you're in Canada right and sure. you don't you don't necessarily know that uh you know if you proceed far enough into the sign of Canada you will certainly realize that you are <laughs> you are subject to a different ruler. Um, but if you're, you know, a third of a degree in, you may not have talked to anybody. You nobody may have told you you're in Canada yet. Um, and you know, and likewise, if you're just crossing through the woods, you might think you're already in Canada, but actually it's gonna be about 20 minutes until you hit the official border. And that there's um there's a little there's a there's a confusion there about what rules apply. And uh I know I'm excited to talk about the 30 different texts that talk about this in different ways, but that's there's a general agreement that it is specific uh space even though, you know, the rules apply, the native themselves may may not be aware of them, may have a hard time acting in accordance with them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I like that idea that there's some borders that are more porous than others. Yeah, so that's worth talking about. So the other thing is, so once we've established that there's that really stark distinction between like the overall ruler of one sign versus the overall ruler of another, and this episode, I guess, is actually really well placed because it's coming right in between part one and two of our Zodiac series where we're going through and we're talking about the qualities of each of the signs and the significations or meanings and how we've really focused on how the core meanings of each sign is based on especially those four basic properties of uh, the gender of the sign, the quadruplicity or modality, the triplicity or element, and then finally the planetary ruler. And those are things that are unique to each sign and that change drastically from one sign to another. 
But that being said, like once we establish that and how there are stark differences between the signs, and I even I think talked about how some signs act in a way that's like so radically different from the sign that came before it that it's almost acting as like a corrective measure to some of the excesses of the previous sign. Like for example, moving from Leo to Virgo, you see it going from this very sort of extravagant sign that sometimes can be associated with like egotism or things like that to almost like the exact opposite end of the spectrum where Virgo is the most, I don't want to say the most, but it's one of the more humble signs. And egotism is often like subverted for you know, practicality or for being helpful to other people in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and as we talked about, the polarity or gender of each sign of the signs flips every time you proceed. You mm-hmm. go from there's you never have you know you never have like yang or active twice in a row. You never have yin or receptive or supportive twice in a row. It's always. It, there's 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 a constant flip between um, yin and yang, masculine and feminine, positive and negative, day and night, and which keep keeps the balance right. And as you said, can serve as a corrective to the excesses of the one before. Sure. So that being said, and those stark differences being established, once we've done that, that being said, let's look into some of the different ways because when when we started talking about this and kind of looking into some different texts. We did find some exceptions where there have been some traditional discussions, especially about gradations within the individual zodiacal signs and there being different phases or different parts of the sign that have different meanings so that there may be a difference between, let's say, if you're born in the middle of the sign versus if you're born at the beginning of the sign or you're born at the end of the sign. And that actually, I think, is not irrelevant. That's actually very relevant to this issue and needs to be included in part of the discussion. And that's what makes me nervous about too, pushing too much back against this, this idea of a hybrid sign cusp that sometimes it might be good going too far in not acknowledging some of the important traditional variations within the signs that actually might relate to or might actually be contributing to this issue on some level. Right. Because if we just invalidate um, like, you know, the, again, the, the whole, the Scorpator thing is, um, not a correct or useful way of looking at it. But like you said, with the pushback, we miss the difference between the beginning, middle and end of a sign. If we just say, no, it doesn't matter at all. And saying that, no, there are no Scorpators. We could, I I'm willing to say there are no Scorpators, but I won't say that the end is exa- like 29 degrees Aries is exactly the same as zero degrees Aries, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's this nuance around beginnings, middles, and ends, which, I mean, for God's sake, it's astrology. We're studying time and sequence. Of course, there's a difference <laughs> between the beginning, middle, and end. Right, right, exactly. And so let's get into that discussion at this point in terms of partially a textual discussion. Well, before we even get to the textual discussion, there's one miscellaneous one I was just thinking of this morning that came to me, which is, let's say somebody's born with the sun at 29, 50 degrees of Aries, right? So they're mm-hmm. born, let's say we have their exact time birth. It's off a birth certificate. We know that they were born at like 1256 PM exactly, and their sun was at 2956 Aries. So one of the things that's kind of interesting to think about is that by timing, by secondary progressions, if you do that person's secondary progressions, 
very shortly after that person is born, their son will actually move by secondary progression into the sign of Taurus. And therefore, the first, most of the first few decades of their life, like the first 30 years basically, then will be having them experience secondary progressed son moving through Taurus rather than, and even though their son was originally in the sign of Aries when they were born. So the sun sign position of the sun at Aries is still dominant and is still relevant in terms of characterizing the person's overall birth chart. And there might still be a question about how you use secondary progressions and to what extent things like secondary progress sun actually do influence the, the character of the personality to any extent. But it's actually interesting or worth thinking about how a person born with the sun cl- very close to a sign cusp even though they're born in one sign, experiencing the whole developmental phase of their life in another sign could have some sort of impact on them in some way. Yeah. Well, and conversely, if you're born at 10 minutes into Aries, then you would spend the maximum amount of time with both your natal and progressed son in the same sign. Right. Because, right, you know, point. like I, I was born with a son at uh, 15, basically. So first 15 years, Pisces, next 15, Aries, or next 30, Aries, right? Whereas, you know, the most you could possibly have for an overlap between those two would be 30. And if you were born at, you know, 10 minutes into Aries, then you would have max. Whereas what you're saying, if you're born at the, at the end, then you have minimum, both of which are the extremes, uh, uh, the extremes of possible the extremes of minimal and maximal overlap between progression and so and uh, uh, natal, right? Because I mean, because that's kind of an interesting thing that's a little bit underexplored in astrology, which is to what extent is what we experience as our birth charts and the characters of the signs of the zodiac, especially in the way that that manifests in character traits in some instances, especially if it's connected with personal planets or the ascendant or the ruler of the ascendant or something like that, therefore manifesting in the person's character and identity, how much of what we experience through that is just due to having the natal placement in that sign versus how much of that is influenced by those placements getting activated in some ways by later timing techniques where you have transits that come up and hit those those natal positions or where those natal positions were in the birth chart, or you have secondary progressions that keep moving and then activate certain positions relative to the natal chart or what have you. There's this interesting question about the role of transits in influencing the natal placements and really being, in some instances, the triggers or the causes of later experiences and later events that occur in our life that then bring out some of those character traits that otherwise might just be dormant within us but not necessarily fully awakened or fully activated. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's um right, that's a that's a crucial issue. One of the ways of thinking about that I like that is more common in um Vedic astrology or Jyotish um is they they talk about that's when you get the fruits of those positions, whether it's bitter fruit or sweet fruit. The idea is, you know, the the implication is the tree was there the whole time, but then you taste the fruit of that position when it's activated, for example, by Time Lord, right? That's where you see that's where you see the result, rather than just like sure the the you know that's in you, um, potentially invisible, um, but then there's a period where it's enacted um, by people, by yourself, et cetera, et cetera, and that's. 
you know, and I think that's, I mean, that's one of the, the pieces of the art of astrology is to figure out, is to sort of juxtapose the, um, the modern psychological where all the planets are in you and operating all the time, which is mm -hmm. true on a certain level, but then to figure out when um, those planets are going to describe life conditions very exactly, right? Where right. that Saturn is going to be like, that's your year, like with an annual perfection. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, there's a fear of this and a fear of that. And then that year you live that out, right? Right. Like the year that your house burned down or, or that you won the lottery or some like objective concrete circumstance that was not a result of a psychological thing. Right. It wasn't just like a, yeah, it wasn't just a predisposition. Um, right. And because in my experience, astrology operates on both those levels, yeah. but you have to be careful not to conflate those levels. Right? Sure. Just because somebody, somebody might, you know, people have, you know, some really, some great success things in their chart, but you read for a 24 year old and you look at the Time Lords and you're like, oh yeah, and that'll, you know, you really get to taste that fruit when you're in your mid forties. Like the right. li the life has that, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean like you can see it right now, right? And you might like yeah. secretly suspect that you're awesome and going to be really successful, um, and secretly doubt that. But you know the 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 again the timing might be next year or it might be when you're seventy. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, part of what I was saying also though goes back to that psychology debate that happens the the nature versus nurture debate in psychology, which is essentially um, the question of how much are certain aspects of behavior a product of either like inherited genetic traits that are there lying dormant in you that eventually are awakened at different points in your life, versus how much of our behavior or psychological traits are acquired or learned characteristics that come from especially like early childhood experiences and that's the area where modern astrology has done some really interesting modern psychological astrology has done some interesting things looking at early cycles of development that happen in terms of transits and how sometimes that can coincide with important turning points in a person's psychology and stuff where things can go sometimes one way or another um, but I think that that might be relevant here in the, this discussion in some way uh, when it comes to the birth chart placements and the things that are almost like genetic in us in some way that are there from birth versus the transits that we have after birth that indicate important turning points, especially developmentally as we get older. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. So I, I guess I just bring that up because there's this issue where transits that happen could be very important in dictating psychological development later on and if you do have a shift like that where your sun is inherently like in one sign or another planet is inherently one sign but then you go through the whole early phases of your life with it in another sign you know hey that that could be relevant in terms of altering things in some way or maybe that needs to be taken into account yeah actually so i'm going to jump to some of the stuff that's later down on my list cuz i feel like it's perfectly appropriate here cuz we're talking about activating planets Sure. Um, and so, um, in uh, uh, in Vedic astrology, especially in the the Parashara tradition, which I've been studying, um, there are several specific qualities which are ascribed to a cuspy planet, and there there are different definitions um, for different issues, right? And so, 
Basically, so this is in pra- Parashara, you said? Yeah, yeah. So and, and in and the Parashara is like it's one of the earlier earliest um Indian astrological texts on natal astrology that survives and I think Pingree dates it to around like the 7th or 8th century. I think was his best guess. That's what I've I've heard a lot of dates and um I I'm not <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm not well, going to high, highly um yeah, uh, well, controversial well, because some what we can say what we can say with certainty is that the um BPHS or the uh, Brihat Prashara Horashastra BPHS um is widely and highly regarded uh right. as an authoritative text in Vedic astrology um and not by everybody but by a lot and that's the school I've been studying with with Freedom Cole and the Sanjay Roth lineage um, sure. And so Prashara gives us um, several conditions that are absolutely dependent on cusps. So um, we have um, <clears throat> so cusps are um, uh, several of the cusp conditions are categorized under doshas, which are uh, f- uh, specific flaws in time. There, there's the, there's the idea that there are sort of cracks in time when things are changing over that make things more difficult for the planet and therefore for the native, right? And is that, because um, that's the same term that's used for like the Vedic temperaments, isn't it? The doshas? Um, I, I think it's very similar, but one of the Sanskrit letters is different. That this okay. dosha means flaw, which is Got not it. to be confused with dasha for, um, you know, time period. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm still working on the language, um, just starting to. And so, one of the uh, one of the really easy ones is um, it's a Sakranti dosha, which is when the sun is in the first degree of a sign, um, and then there's a special version of that that's considered most difficult, where they say that the Pisces Aries cusp is re- it, the Pisces Aries, Cancer Leo, and Scorp Sag cusps are the hardest. The crossing from water to fire. Is the are those are the three hardest out of those twelve cusps, and um, those are even more specifically de- uh, excuse me even more specifically um, defined. They're less than a degree, or yeah, they're so, less than a degree. So in Parashara, basically, then he's interpreting all cusps as being somewhat problematic, but then saying that some are more problematic than others. Yep, absolutely. Is that a as good I understand, way to it. summarize that. that okay. Yeah, that's a good summary, and so. so- so that's actually very similar to, if you want, because I could just interject really quick, that's very similar to how Hephaestia of Thebes in the 5th century also seems to interpret cusps, where in his zodiac sign delineations at the end of each of them, he has what often seems like a somewhat negative interpretation because it's treating it like it's the in-between space, but it's almost like no man's land. And so as a result of that, they seem to give it almost a negative interpretation for that reason. Yes, right. So over 29 and under one, just for general on the cosmos, it's always with it, you know, it's within one. And so the problem that what the, what this signifies um, is that when that planet is activated, um, the person has a really hard time making transitions, that they get stuck in the cracks uh, or at the, they get stopped at the border between countries. They have yeah. a really hard time making transitions um, when that planet is a time lord. Uh, we were actually in class the other day. We went over an example where a woman was in a Mercury period. She'd been in a Mercury period for a couple years, 
and she was trying to finish her graduate degree and it just kept dragging on and kept dragging on and kept dragging on. And that was because her mercury was in one of those cracks. The strength was otherwise fine, but it was in that, it was in that, that stuck at the border position. And so the, you know, the, the um, predicted delineation would be, and the situation, her situation was, she just couldn't graduate, right? She would get closer and closer, but would, couldn't quite do it. Okay. Um, and so that, that's an example of how it's interpreted and then how it's applied, that when it, that planet's time period comes up, it has a hard time finishing. So is this related to the age gradations also? Is that in the same text? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, that's it's strongly related, right? So um, I believe Parashara gives, um, and I know that there are, there are Western analogs for this, um, gives different ages to planets depending on how far into a sign they are. Basically, a planet is an infant when it enters the sign at zero, and then it's sold and it dies at the very end, right? And so there, the one version of this is just so that there are five ages, right? There's like uh, infant, adolescent, um, you know, adult, uh, older adult, and then um, venerable, Right. And so you divide the 30 degrees of the zodiac by five, you get six degrees each. There's an alternate system that gives infant an extreme old age, um, only a few degrees on either side, and then gives the other phases of life a lot more. But the, the implication of this, right? Um, if so, here we're switching from a spatial boundary uh, to almost a reincarnation boundary, right? The, the suggestion then is that. Um, a planet reincarnates uh, when it crosses a sign cusp, right? Um, you know, it goes from being old to living again. And so, um, you know, what we have is the the implication is that a planet that's at 2950, right? Like our planet at 2950 Aries is, mm -hmm. is, like a, is like a person who's so old, they don't have any energy to do something. And then a planet at 10, you know, 10 minutes into Aries is so young they have no idea what's going on right right that's, a, that's another way of framing that um and yeah I, I mean i like that because it raises what seems like an obvious thing which is that the question of is there a difference between a planet at the beginning of a sign versus a planet at the end of the sign and here in the indian, indian tradition what we have is they're saying yes that there's gradations of some sort of development that happens depending on where the sign is this where the planet is placed in the overall context of the 30 degrees that compose that zodiacal sign because each sign of course it's not just a, a block it's each sign is 30 degrees of space along the ecliptic which does i mean in the zodiac we can already see that as sort of like a representing a broader progression in the changes of from sign to sign but then there's the question of are there any changes or variations or progressions within each individual sign itself? And that's one of the things that this Indian uh, tradition is addressing. Yeah, I think it's a nice. Um, I, I think it's a nice set of metaphors, and it speaks to if you know if we let's say you know we we I'm sure we could find a person who's like I totally identify as a Scorpator, and who doesn't let's say they've got the Sun at 29. Let's go with 2950 of of Scorpio. And they have zero planets in Sagittarius, but they're like, no, dude, I really feel like a Scorpator. 
What when you say Scorpator, are you mixing Scorpio and Sagittarius, or you skip? It sounds like you're mixing Scorpio and Taurus. Oh yeah, I just meant Centaur for. Oh Centaur, okay. I'm sorry okay. if that wasn't clear. I mean, no, I Scor- Scorpators are pretty. I mean, you know, they, they, I believe those are in the Epic of Gilgamesh. You have the Scorpion men and women. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> right. I would I would say Scorpio Tarius. Scorpi- yeah, Scor- Scorpitarius. Um, Scorpitarius, okay. But anyway, right? Um, and so this person says, oh, no, I feel really I, – I really do feel like I'm stuck in between these qualities. That is very much what these – you know, the the Rashi Sandhi and the Sakranti Dosha and the Gandanta Dosha. That is what it's saying is that you, you do – you get stuck. You're actually more likely to get stuck in transitions and places between – and so, you know, that, that actually kind of coheres nicely the, you know, and so these factors that I'm discussing, these are viewed as flaws and then they have remedies. So you don't get confused. No, actually you are on the Scorpio side, right? This is actually your one thing The part of the, um, part of the, you know, the, uh, the cure is in a sense, it's, it's getting rid of the confusion that comes in being in an indeterminate place. And so one of the like I, I think for the Rashi Sundays one of the um, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the one of the cures is Ganesh mantras. Ganesh clears away obstacles. Um, it helps you get from point A to point B, which is the problem that's suggested by having something that can fall into that uh, fall into that boundary place and get stuck. Interesting. Yeah. Running into a boundary or running into an obstacle and Ganesh being, that's funny because Ganesh is traditionally like the remover of boundaries. I've always heard that, but in this context, that would make a lot more sense. Remover of obstacles. Obstacles. Okay. Right. Um, Ganesh, uh, Ganesh is also prayed to for precision. So Ganesh observes boundaries, but then plots the, it's, he's a pathfinder, right? Where, you know, oh, I don't know. Am I in Canada? Am I in the United States? Am I alive or I'm dead? Let me show you the way through. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're like, you're saying, what I was saying earlier is that this sounds similar in some ways to what shows up in Hephaestia, who's this like early fifth century astrologer in book one, I think chapter one of his. Uh, book Apotelismatics, he at the end of each of the signs, he goes through the, the meanings of the signs of the zodiac, their significations. He talks about the the decans and the twelfth parts, or he talks about the decans and the terms or bounds, and gives even delineations for the decans, which I think you drew on in your your decans book. But right at the very end of each section for each sign, he gives some delineations for what happens when the person has placements that fall in the cusp and what he calls it is the interstice you know the place in between most of them are often negative though uh he often gives negative delineations like one of them is and the interstice between it looks like um capricorn and aquarius says makes those who are expelled or devoured by a beast so not a very not a very positive <laughs> delineation but that notion being expelled of like falling maybe through the cracks, I think that as you were saying earlier, maybe being part of the underlying thing there. Yeah, we were talking about that. Um, and you read a bunch before we got on, you read me a bunch of the horrible things that Hephaestio says. And right. it, a lot of it's like fall, it, it comes down to we'd say, oh, you know, she fell through the cracks, right? You know, that's what you'd say at the funeral, right? You're like, oh, just didn't get help when they needed it, you know, this and that. And that's, again, that's very similar to what, um, Parashara's 
saying is that, you know, there's there are cracks here um, and that it's easy to get stuck in them. And so I, I it's probably worth noting that any planet can be in these cracks. Right. Um, and that this stuff, a lot of this stuff apply. If you have Mars at twenty nine fifty, um, then that can apply to your Mars. Right. I gave an example with Mercury, with someone trying to finish their graduate degree. And mm. and so these are these are meaningful uh, positional conditions to interpret. Um, and also, you know, um, if you're listening and you're primarily coming from a sun sign angle and your sun is in one of those cracks, one, it's not an insoluble problem. And two, you probably have lots of planets that aren't in the cracks, right? Because we're not doing a we're not doing a one symbol zodiac, right? We're not saying, oh, you're this. And if it and if it's in the cracks, then you're fucked, right? That's not it's not what astrology says. We all have um, <laughs> a preferable and not so preferable uh, planetary <laughs> arrangements in our charts. Yeah, and that's one of the problems I think modern people often have reading the ancient texts is they'll usually give in the delineations like the extremes. They'll give like best case scenario and worst case scenario for whatever the placement is, so that you're supposed to understand that this is like the extremist manifestation possible, but that most people due to different mitigating factors will will fall somewhere more in between. Yeah, that's it's sort of like the unstated implication in every pre-modern text is given absolutely nothing to contradict it, this is what it looks like. Sure. So just one more delineation from Hephaestia with that proviso out of the way. He says, there's another cusp. I won't state which one because the point is just giving an example, not necessarily focusing on one particular cusp. So he says, those brought forth upon the interstice of this cusp between these two zodiacal signs will be silent and he will be near to the gods, and some will die unmarried. And this is right after he gives the Deccan delineations. So I think he's talking about the rising degree being on the cusp between these two signs, right? And that's one of the um, the more the more intense um, flaws in time are um, are are for the for the rising, right? Like it's. Like these things matter for planets, but it matters a lot more if you're rising is on one of those. And then there are also um, those, there there's some stuff for the the boundaries between the lunar mansions or nakshatras, and that's actually that's part of why in the uh, in that uh, Indian system that the Pisces, Aries, Cancer, Leo, and Scorpio Sag cusps are considered more severe breakage points. Because that's where the uh, the nakshatra or lunar mansion boundaries line up with the sign boundaries. So oh, right. in a sense, it's a double it's a double void or a double transition as opposed to just a sing just by sign or just by mansion. Yeah, well, that raises a really important issue. Where to me, it almost seems like this could be more of an issue, especially in the sidereal zodiac. Because in the sidereal zodiac, you do actually, if you look at the constellation, so let's say not just the abstract 12, exactly 30 degree signs of the sidereal zodiac, but let's say look at the constellations themselves, there's some that actually overlap a little bit, like Pisces and Aquarius, mm -hmm. which comes up in the, the whole age of Aquarius discussion. And I think that was where the Piquarius thing that Patrick <laughs> came up with, it was in one of the early age the, of Aquarius discussions. The, the age of Piquarius. Yeah, and we had a lovely um, listener who who drew a, an awesome like illustration of Pisces and Aquarius uh, merged from that discussion. But 
in the sidereal zodiac, you do have overlaps of some constellations or in other areas, you have constellations that are super far apart. So there really is like nothing happening in between. So almost sidereally, there's more of an issue there. Yeah, I was actually, so when I was trying to, when I was looking through my books, um, I was like, oh, I remember there's something in Ibn Ezra right now. I was just paging through and I would get distracted. One of the things that I don't usually think about, but that's in a lot of old books is the difference between dark, bright, and smoky degrees. Mm-hmm. And that is almost certainly a sidereal, originally a stellar set of factors. Is that degree bright because there are bright stars there? Yeah, probably. Is it smoky because there's a little, there's some dim stuff in the background, but it's not, you know, um, bright or dark or, oh, is it, there's just nothing there. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's um, primordial void. Um, and so a lot of, uh, you know, a fair amount of this tends towards this language of um, absence or falling into a crack or getting, you know, getting stuck in something or, you know, or being outside of the, the, how should we say, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the standard order of being. That example you just gave from Hephaestio, like the person being silent and close to God, that person is sort of outside the normal order. Right. Or the person, what was the other uh, condition that they could be in? Um, but it was there, they were they're outside the normal order. Right. And that, you know, that, that, yeah, that, that, that seemed, there does seem to be a like crossing. There's like a little, there's like a micro abyss to be crossed, it seems. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I can understand. You know, that might be relevant to this discussion where if we're finding some ancient texts where they're really emphasizing that, is that because they're coming from more of a sidereal perspective where there's literally no stars there, or where in some instances there are overlaps between stars or constellations there? And then is that relevant in a tropical context or is it completely different? And therefore, those texts aren't applicable. I could see somebody attempting to argue it sort of either way. Um, and that maybe that's besides the point, but that might be a good transition to mention that. I have found another example where it seems to almost in an ancient text um, from Serapio of Alexandria, where it almost seems to support uh, the sort of modern pop astrology interpretation of there being a blend of some sort. So here's the text. So it's from this author, this Hellenistic author who wrote in Greek. His time period is very uncertain. It might have been around the first century uh, CE or first century AD. And his name was Serapio of Alexandria. And we have a text that summarizes supposedly a bunch of different things or a bunch of different points that were made in different parts of his works. And one of them, so there was a translation that Eduardo Gramalia did about, I think it was back in like 2010, give or take. And we posted it on the Hellenistic Astrology website. So you can find it there on HellenisticAstrology.com if you just search for Serapio. And the paragraph says that here it is. He says, when a star chances to be within the first three degrees of a sign of the zodiac, it has its strength in the preceding sign. In the same manner, if, on the contrary, a star happens to be within the last three degrees of a sign, it has the strength of its effects in the following sign, mainly when it's the sun or the moon. Um, if a star turns out to be on the division of two signs, its effects become stronger and more immoderate. That's interesting, more immoderate. 
yeah, a moderate, so lacking in moderation for some reason when it's on the division between two signs. But it's like the point that I usually focus on is the first one because then it becomes this question is where it, it seems in a relatively straightforward reading that it's saying if it's in the first three degrees of the sign, it says it has its strength in the preceding sign versus it says if it's in the last three degrees of a sign, it has its strength of its effects in the following sign. And it focuses on this, especially when it's the sun or the moon. So to me in reading that, I always read it and it seemed very similar to what some of those modern, some of the pop astrology things were saying about perhaps there being some sort of overlap where if a planet's at the end of the sign, it starts picking up some of the qualities or significations of the following sign. Or if it's at the beginning of a sign, maybe it's still carrying some of the the qualities or significations from the the previous sign. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Ibn Ezra says something very similar. Um, so Ibn Ezra says, when a planet is at the end of a sign, it loses its strength, and all of the power is in the sign it will enter next. And then he continues, if the planet is at the twenty ninth degree of a sign, though. Its influence is still in the sign it is in, because with within three degrees, the planet has influence in the degree it is in, one degree before and one degree after. And so what he's saying there sounds confusing at first. So all of the numbers in Ibn Ezra are ordinal numbers. So the 29th is actually 28, right? And so what he's saying is that the planet's going to affect... It's you know it's a it's a mobile three degrees one degree before one degree after and then the degree it's actually in and so he's saying well if it's only at twenty eight then all three degrees are in the sign but when it moves into the last then one of its then then part of that little three degree orb which he's designating is is lighting up the next sign and so I think okay. maybe that's part of the idea is that the the planet's um, like closest orb for conjunction is actually the in in the case of Ibn Ezra one degree um, is actually that light is falling into the next sign and energizing it. Yeah, well, because part of the issue there is it might be an issue with the aspect doctrine because and and that issue where ancient astrologers, especially in the Hellenistic tradition, but even a little bit into the medieval tradition, were using both sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects, and the question of if a planet is close to a sign cusp, how wide do you allow the orb to go? And one of the interesting things about that is that classically, in Hellenistic astrology, they didn't usually really de define orbs. They did give the moon 13 degrees or 12 or 13 degrees, which is its average daily motion. But for most of the planets besides the moon, the primary orb that they gave was 3 degrees. So that could be where some of this stuff is coming from with some of these sign boundaries and talking about like a almost three degree distance at the beginning and end of the signs because that was kind of partially the traditional orb that was given that would have applied to out of sign aspects and those exceptions that they would have given to sign based aspects where they would have said that the orb of the planet or the ray of the planet's light would actually still be crossing the sign boundary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I want to give Ibn Ezra's other statement. Okay. And for for people who want to you know read along at home, this is in the Epstein translation on pages 130 to 131. And so, so this is Mir, Mir Epstein published by Arhat Publications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's some and it, commentary is, by hand, I believe. And this is the beginning of wisdom, right? Yep. This is the beginning of wisdom. Okay. 
And so, well, hopefully this podcast is the beginning of wisdom. Right. This is, <laughs> um, or, and hopefully not the end. Or just, or, you know, at least it, I'll, I'll certainly settle for an installment of wisdom or at least right. a little clarity. But the so interstice, interstice of wisdom. <laughs> and so, you know, so he said that about a planet at the end of the sign. Um, but in a different section, he says any planet that is positioned at the beginning of the sign is considered weak until it reaches five degrees away from it. So he's giving us different conditions for the beginning and end. And, you know, that the the two sides of the cusp are not the same, right? Which is the suggested by planetary age, right? Extreme old age and infancy are not the same, but they do have a lot of parallels. You know, there's the, what is it? It's the old, uh, is it a Shakespeare thing? But people, you know, people joke about how, you know, you, there's sort of, you know, you, you, you keep growing up until you get to middle age. And then after that, you become more and more like a baby until when you're on your deathbed, you're like an infant, you know, you need to be fed and cared for and wiped and all that. And so, yeah, so just, I mean, it just goes back to like Aristotle's, um, on generation and corruption and that idea that everything is constantly either growing or, um, decaying, like everything is either in a state of like building up or, a state of decline mm -hmm. as part of that that natural cycle. So this is interesting because that means in both we have instances in both the Indian tradition as well as the Western tradition where they're giving gradations on some level in the signs of a sort of planetary age or planetary strength based on the location within the sign. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and that's um, and so the that that difference between. You know, even though there are parallels between infancy and extreme old age, there's also they're also opposite, right? And so, one of the things you see about you know you, you people uh, one very very widespread factor, which is or widespread in that it's used by lots of different astrologers over a pretty good time period, is the idea of the critical degree, the last degree of the sign, um, and that's absolutely a cusp factor. And that's not supposed to be great, right? That's the extreme old age where you don't see the first degree being, you, you don't see the first degree of a sign being mentioned as a critical degree or the anoretic degree. Yeah, I was, I was curious. I never actually researched where that came from. I often see it quoted way too much. I feel like sometimes in modern times where people talk about the anoretic degree and it's, kind of freak out about it, yeah, but I was always curious. It can where, be a bit much. <laughs> right. Where where that entered the tradition, it must be like a late medieval or Renaissance thing that gets cited surprisingly frequently in modern text. Yeah, it's yeah. I I I, I didn't I didn't have time to track it down, but this um this made me you know this cusp discussion made me think of it. So yeah, but totally. just looking at the end versus the beginning. Um, so in terms of the well, in terms of the terms or bounds, the last bound of a sign is always malefic. Yeah, that's a super important, super good point because that just ties us right back into potentially this age thing or at least the gradation thing. So maybe it would be worth outlining what that is for the people the people coming in off the streets who uh, are doing just sun sign astrology at this stage. So the, the bounds or the terms, sometimes called the confines, uh, mm. people have been trying to come up with a term over the past 20 years. If we can just settle on one, I'll be happy. I'm really tired of saying the bounds, also known as the terms. I, I never say terms because it's too confusing. Even though that's the Renaissance standard, I always say I, I stuck with bounds. Like bounds was my thing. Confines 
while conceptually is is closer to what the actual meaning is, is too clunky for me to say. Whereas bounds and bounds was was Schmidt. I should give Schmidt credit because Schmidt's the one who, when he was translating the Hellenistic Greek text in the '90s, he was trying to look at the Greek text and then come up with an honest literal translation of what that term meant in English instead of just like immediately adopting whatever the English current English usage was he was trying to like think carefully about actually translating the Greek term because once you do that it turned out that many of the Greek terms had underlying meaning and philosophical or conceptual symbolism built into them that you were supposed to be able to access if you understood the original term and so bounds was his initial attempt to translate that original Greek term to define these subdivisions of the signs of the zodiac into five unequal sections, each of which was assigned to one of the five traditional planets, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Right. And so, right. So every, um, every sign has, uh, has a, has a confines, has a bound for each of those planets. They're in different order in, um, a lot of the signs and they're of unequal lengths, and the unequal lengths don't stay the same between signs. And so they're, they're a bit of a pain because <laughs> the rationale behind them is, uh, is uh, much more difficult to ascertain, but they're in basically every text of astrology for 1,700 years, and so we can't just ignore them. But one yeah. of the, one one of the th things that's, that's frustrating is that it's not clear what the rationale is for the most popular or widest used set of bounds, which is called the Egyptian bounds, which may have been the very first one introduced. Which may or may not be Egyptian at all. <laughs> right. We well, it's probably, it's probably called the Egyptians because it was probably introduced in the text of Nechepso and Petasiris, who were like the famous, they were, it was a text that was written sometime around the first century BCE that was attributed to an Egyptian pharaoh and a priest, but it, it was probably not written by an Egyptian pharaoh or priest. It was written by somebody that was using that as like a literary conceit in order to introduce this new approach to astrology that they wanted to introduce, which interestingly goes back to our Parashara discussion because that's exactly, in my opinion, what Parashara is, is it's somebody in the 8th century who wants to publish a text on astrology and instead of taking credit for it themselves, it was sometimes in some ancient cultures made more sense to attribute it to an ancient or a mythical or philosophical figure um, for for different different reasons. Oh yeah, um, Parashara is the like grandson of a god and the uh, child of an immortal sage and an immortal sage himself. Um, Parashara is in many ways like Indian astro Hermes. You right. know, if we. But then it's like it's, the problem is that sometimes there's people in modern times that are like, no, it was actually Prasher. It was actually a guy that lived 10,000 years ago and was like received insight directly from a god or something like that. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, Prasher is a legendary figure, right? Um, sure. And there and with not like strict uh, Greek god Hermes, but like culture hero, creator, civilizing knowledge bringer Hermes. Um, you know, who's widely regarded. That's the Hermes Thrace great and all that. Like that, there might have been a guy who got legends wrapped around him, but it, yeah, it's that sort of indeterminate figure. Um, right. Yeah, there's a bunch of those in, in ancient astrology. I guess is always trying to say, but in the Western tradition, there's usually less of an issue being like, yeah, this wasn't actually an Egyptian pharaoh. It was probably some guy that just attributed it to somebody named. 
uh, you know, Nechepso. And then as a result of that, we have techniques that come from that text that are attributed to the Egyptians 2000 years later. Yeah. It, and that's a, that's actually, I mean, that's a fun issue in of itself, but back to the matter at hand. So right. one of the, one of the few regular features of the bounds is that every sign's last bound, it's, it's last, you know, division is always either Mars or Saturn. So every sign always ends on a malefic note. There's no right. sign which ends with Venus or Jupiter or anything but Mars and Saturn. And that's one of the few patterns in the Egyptian bounds that are recognizable that people have tried to use to do something with in order to figure out what the rationale is. Yep. And so that this speaks to, and where's the anoretic degree? It'll be the last degree of what is uh, what is always going to be the bounds of a malefic. And there are a number, uh, as you know, well know, but for the listeners, there are a number of techniques that say, okay, to determine the length of life or to determine how this is going to go, figure out whether this planet is in the bounds of a benefic or the bounds of a malefic. And if it's in the bounds of a malefic, then, you know, bad delineation or, you know, negative delineation. So we have that the end being difficult or more difficult um, attested to in uh, in the bounds of every planet. And then uh, I don't know if we were talking about this or I was just thinking about this, but I think we talked about it. The um, the moon will almost always be void, of course, once it gets that far into a sign. Using right, using the def the modern definition. There's like three different definitions of void, of course, but yeah, that's important. That's an important point, right? In in the sense that it won't. Yes, yeah, so you using the definition, respect respecting the other definitions, but using the definition that the moon will not complete an aspect with any planet before it leaves the sign. Uh, right. uh, the moon in the last degree of a sign will 99% of the time be, um, be void, of course, according to that definition. Yeah, that's interesting because that then goes back to that whole like falling between the cracks thing that we were talking about earlier and then has almost like another overlapping meaning of why symbolically that might be the case. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, and that and that's true with you know the there's no planet which is quite as dependent upon aspects with other planets as the moon, um, but you know it it does mean that that there's no way that, that like that um, the 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 planet a planet that far into a sign isn't going to encounter anything else before it leaves. No more challenges, no more boons, no more discoveries. Like it's kind of all over, but the new thing has not yet begun. Right. And and going back to the bounds, that's a really important point because I think the bounds were probably first introduced in the Nechepso Pedaceres text within the context of the length of life technique. That's always been one of my speculations because we have a bunch of authors that all seem to cite Pedaceres for the length of life technique, and they also cite them for the bounds and attribute them to the Egyptians. And Nechepso and Pedaceres were the primary Egyptians that are usually referred to. So that technique, though, the length of life technique, part of it was a progressions technique or a directive technique where you progress the degree of the ascendant or you progress the degree of other planetary placements like the sun or the moon, and you do two things. You, you direct them until they hit the rays of other planets, especially the benefics or the malefics, and you also progress them through the degrees of the signs of the zodiac, and depending on what bounds they're in, the planet that rules those bounds is activated as a time lord for that part of that point in time. And the problem with that is that when 
it gets to the end of the signs, that means they're universally going to go through the bounds of malefics and therefore activate malefics during those time periods, and therefore by implication have a more challenging meaning, especially for matters pertaining to, to physical vitality during that period of the native's life. So there would be sort of challenging connotations, especially with the end of the signs due to the bounds being placed there. That's actually so interesting, right? Because that, I mean, that's interesting in itself, but that's that also that hooks into our discussion of planetary age, right? right. Like, because what we're talking about the length of life technique is when will you be, when will you die, right? Right. And so when are you coming up on death, which is another way of saying, you know, your years are almost up. And so the year, like you get in the danger zone whenever you get to the end of the sign, because even if the there aren't sufficient factors to indicate the end of life, you're at least you're still in the bounds of a malefic, right? So you're sure. it's still like every end of a sign is danger zone, and this is really interesting. Um, so as I just said, the uh, as I said earlier, the stages of life, um, you know, infant to old, um, are div- in 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 the in the two systems, the two Vedic systems I'm looking at, um, they both cut it into five. That's really interesting that we, that it's an interesting coincidence that we also have five bounds. Oh, that's, that is interesting. Huh. I wonder if that's connected because, yeah, that is interesting because there are sometimes those overlaps where there were exchanges between the traditions, but sometimes you can see, like we were just talking about on the forecast episode yesterday, which I think will come out after this one, about how it's like it seems like the Indians got the idea of void of course from the Greek tradition where it was called kenodromia. Right. And, and the, the, Indians, the yoga for that is called kemodroma. Yeah. So like they just like the, trans, transliterated day. it. Right. So they just transliterated the Greek term kenodromia into Sanskrit and called it kemodroma. But it seems like instead of taking the concept very literally, they interpreted it like what that would mean in their approach and came up with a slightly different like technical way to apply that concept within the context of Indian astrology using the other techniques that they had used, the hybrid approach that was you know clear in that time. And this perhaps is something similar. Yeah, this makes me want to go look at the Yavana Jataka, which is like our 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 bridge book, right? And see see what they're doing with planetary see what the Yavanajataka is doing with planetary age and with the bounds, if anything, and with length. Yeah, of I mean life they had a bunch of subdivisions already early on. I don't they had the bounds, they called them trimshamshas, which I think it means like division of five. But I don't know if that's the same one that ended up being used here in some of the later age ones. They also had other subdivisions, which are worth mentioning that we haven't touched on yet, like the twelfth parts or Dwadashamshas. And, I actually had a point, yeah, about the uh, the Dwadashamsas or okay. duads, as we call them, or you know, as as we call them in English speaking astrology, um, duads. Yeah, and so okay. well, and so um, one of the points uh, about divisional charts that I wanted to mention. So anybody who studied Geodesh knows their their divisional charts. You got the D three, the D seven, the D nine, the D twelve, the D twenty, the D sixty, et cetera, et cetera, and so. This is not exclusive to Vedic astrology. This is something that um, pretty much all traditional astrologers are doing to some degree or another, not to the same degree as Jyotish, but is mm-hmm. cutting up a sign into pieces and then saying that those pieces have different qualities, right? The decans are one example of that. The de- what, what I call the decans or what you, know, you would call the decans, they'd say, oh yeah, the D3, right? Um, and so the duads, which are 
which is cutting a sign into 12 equal pieces and then attributing to each one of those 12 pieces each of the zodiac signs, right? What we have there is literally a zodiac within each sign of the zodiac. It's, you know, it's the holographic zodiac. And that's in, that's, um, that appears to be very strongly regarded as a division in several of the Hellenistic texts. There's, um, you know, for example, in Firmicus, he's always saying, you know, this is the thing, but check the duod, right? See if the duod's there. And you, it's not just Firmicus. Um, you know, because and so it's interesting with the pattern of the way that the the duads or the D12 works is that the last is that so you divide 30 by 12 and you get two and a half. So two and a half degree chunks of a sign. And so the very right. last two and a half degree chunk of a sign will always be um, will always be the sign that actually preceded the sign that you're in. So the last duad of Aries will always correspond to Pisces, right? So we have a 12th relationship, right? Pisces is, Pisces is, in a sense, the origin of Aries. Something had to move through Pisces to get to Aries. And so by going, in a sense, going back to the sign before is an unmaking, right? It's a 12th house relationship. 12th house is undoing, unmaking, dissolving. And so... Our last two and a half degrees are always going to be the sign before the unmaking sign. And then the first two and a half degrees are the only degrees where um, where you have a doubling down. The first two and a half degrees of Aries are double Aries. First two and a half of Taurus, double Taurus, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's interesting how that frames the two sides of a cusp. Um, and just to outline that for, could we run through all of them really quickly to give an example for those that are not familiar with the the duads or the twelfth parts? In the standard approach, it's like if it, if you have the sign Gemini, which is thirty degrees for a full sign, you divide that sign into twelve subdivisions, and then the first two and a half degrees becomes Gemini the sign, and then a Gemini subdivision for two and a half degrees. Then the next two and a half degrees becomes Cancer. The next two and a half degrees becomes Leo, then two and a half degrees of Virgo, and so on and so forth. So that the end of that, the very last twelfth part, the last two and a half degrees would be Taurus. So it would be Gemini the sign, and then Gemini Taurus. Right, and right, and so the the way that that works out is the first one's always a double down, and the last one is always the the sign before, right? Which has again, there's a twelfth house relationship. That's that's where you came from. Going back to where you came from is another way of saying dying. Right, that's interesting. So that's, you know, we're getting into the broader issue here of with the signs of the zodiac in in all traditions, there's traditionally been both multiple subdivisions, so you have traditional subdivisions that have been used like the bounds or the terms, which are uneven uneven divisions into 5. There's also been more even divisions like the decans and the traditional system of decans that's used in the West since um, probably like the fifth century or something, give or take, is the one that assigns one of the seven traditional planets to each of the 10 degree subdivisions. And that's one of the ones that you've worked with a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, wrote a book on it. Right, and you do your you actually do your horoscope column at this point based on the decans partially, right? Yeah, well, so I did thirty six decan columns. I did one complete year of decans. 
I started with uh, with cancer in honor of the Egyptian origins. Did the uh, you know the 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 Thema Mundi style <laughs> year of columns, and then I just couldn't do that much writing, and so I've switched to doing a monthly. But each one of my monthlies is broken down uh, into three, so there's a Deccan section, um, so it's not just a wall of text, or it's a it's a it's an evenly divided wall of text. Sure. Well, and that was your your book. Your first book was on the Deccans, and you used both that that system partially in order to generate delineations, but you also used the other system, which for the longest time I thought it was originated with the Indians, and it still very well may have originated with the Indians, but then I found out that it also has a longer Western tradition than I thought, and this actually became in the 20th century through Alan Leo became the predominant system for assigning Deccan meeting meanings in the 20th century until the revival of traditional astrology. And this was the the triplicity or element system of Deccans where you assign like the first 10 degrees of a sign are that sign, like Gemini, Gemini, and then the next 10 degrees are that sign plus jump forward to the same sign, the, the next sign of the same triplicity. So like Gemini, the, the second 10 degrees of Gemini would be Gemini Libra. And then the third decan would be jumping forward to the next furthest sign in the same triplicity, which would be uh, Gemini Aquarius. And that's like a whole other system that you synthesized with the traditional Western one, right? Yeah. I I, um, I started out thinking because I'd used the traditional West, Western system for over a decade. I was like, well, I already know what the right one is. Um, I don't, you know, I'll mention the other one, but I don't need to do anything more than that. Um, mm-hmm. But what I found was that they, they both gave me meaningful data and it was actually, uh, in sort of seeking out the essence of what that space, those 10 degree divisions were like. Um, I found that if I thought about both of those rulers, um, the space created between them was actually much more descriptive than either one alone. And, what I found out is that in um, uh, there are there are a number of different systems, and in uh, the in the Vedic astrology I've been studying, there are four different versions that you use to find out different stuff. One is about siblings. One is about health and vitality. One is about um, the way that you're using your talents. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So different uh, different ways of looking at the same divisions, depending on what your purpose is. Um, sure. And, and so, and that's a really, I would just say that Deccans are a really good way of beginning to think about the difference between the beginning, middle and end of signs. And then what we're doing, we need, we need to divide by bigger numbers than three, cause we're looking at the very beginning, right. And we're looking right. at the very end. Yeah. And you know, it just leads us to this broader topic about especially harmonic divisions, where especially in, in 20th century and late 20th century astrology, it became a discussion about harmonic divisions of the signs. But in Indian astrology, you have similar sort of rationales of harmonic division, and each subdivision of the signs has specific meanings or purposes based on the numerology associated with whatever you're dividing the sign by. Um, but in the Indian Indian tradition, it's much more well developed. Some of those different subdivisions of the signs and creating entirely different charts out of them. And you know, in the in the Western tradition, we also had some of that, uh, but some of it was lost. Like apparently, there was a text written by an author attributed to Asclepius that had 
delineations for every single degree of the zodiac. So each degree would have like a separate interpretation or meaning based on something. Yeah, well, and there 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 are bits of that in a lot of Western texts, and there's also there's a very odd um, pictorial representation of it. I want to say it's middle 1400s. I want to say it's 15th century. I haven't thought about it in a while. It's the Astrolabium Planum by Johannes mm -hmm. Engel, and there's um, there's an illustration of each decan, and then there's an illustration of each degree. Um, mm. There's not as much interpretation as you would hope for with either of them, and the degree images are very strange. I think it's like the second degree of Aries is like a dog-headed man with a crossbow, which as much as I like weird, I'm not sure how to, you know, interpret that. <laughs> right. Beware, yeah. you have Saturn in the second, you know, in that, in the, in the dog headed guy with a crossbow degree, beware of dog headed men with crossbows. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like, I, I'm interested in the idea of degree symbolism, but this is sometimes the area of astrology where things start to get weird and start to get a bit too abstract. And in the, in the 20th century, of course, the most popular system of that was also one of the weirdest, which was what was it called? It was like Mark Edmund Jones came up with one with a psychic the where they like picked Sabian symbols, Sabian symbols. And they like got together on a, like a bench one day and he wrote down stuff on a piece of pieces of paper. And then they like pulled it out of a hat or something. And this was supposed to be how they came up with like individual delineations for each of the signs, of the Zodiac or something like that. Yeah. Um, oh, and yeah. And so those are, some of those are interesting and some of them are, yeah, they're a bit strange. It's like, um, you know, um, a guy with a hat, um, sits on a rock watching a fire in the distance. Um, mm -hmm. and then, but just on the degree project, my favorite statement on the degrees on, on symbols from the degrees comes from, um, and we're talking about images for the degrees, uh, comes from the Picatrix where the author says, listen, if you really want to get good at this, if you want to know. Uh, if you want to obtain excellence in learning to create images for the planets and their powers, then you should you should create for yourself uh, an image for um, every planet in every degree of the zodiac, as well as an image for the conjunction of any two planets in every degree of the zodiac, every three, every four, every five, etc. And I thought wow. that's so artists out there. That's that's your can you do it in this lifetime challenge. Right. Yeah, that would be a, a big thing. I understand the underlying like meaning or intention of that statement though, because it then makes you really think about all the different possible permutations when you really get down to it. Yeah. And how how immutable or how countless they are. Um, but yeah, I always I never got into Sabian symbols because that's when it starts getting really far away from the astronomy and interpreting astronomy symbolically, which to me is what astrology is largely all about and i realize there's areas where we get into other things like numerology or other types of symbolism but yeah when it comes to just like randomly or sort of psychically assigning meanings to degrees it starts getting a little um out there for me for some reason yeah it's not something that i i make part of my my standard practice or delineation style um it can be sure if anything, you know, just taking a cue from the Pigatrix, it's almost it almost makes more sense in an astrological magic context where you're trying to 
create an image that corresponds as perfectly as possible to the planet that you're doing work with in the degree that it's in at that moment, right? The, mm -hmm. You know, the idea that the more, the more perfect the correspondence, the more, um, the more juice you're going to get. Um, and you know, it, it, with the Sabian symbols, it feels a little bit more, uh, it feels a little bit more like, like sortilege, like drawing cards or throwing runes than it does, uh, astrology. And it's okay that astrology intersects with that, but I know what, I, I know what you mean about like, that doesn't feel like astrology, astrology. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's starts getting into a different territory, but Anyway, that's a separate discussion, and it's just the point was there may be um, different approaches to figuring out meanings to individual degrees or smaller clusters of degrees, and this then becomes relevant in terms of this issue of what does it mean when planets are at the very beginning or very ends of signs, and they very well do, very well may have different meanings in within the context of some of those different approaches and different systems for dividing up the signs into different sections. Yeah, absolutely. Um and so I you know one of the one of the points that I've been winding around is I've been talking more about the end of a sign in that we have the critical degree there, we have the malefic bounds there, we have the 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 metaphor of the the planet's life in that sign is almost over, it's about to die and re reincarnate in the next sign, but I, I haven't said as much um about what it's you know what it's like to be at you know 23 minutes of a new sign right having mm -hmm. metaphorically just been born and so one of the uh, you mentioned schmidt earlier and one of the things that robert schmidt yeah robert schmidt um mm -hmm. uh, him teaching in regard to uh his work with hellenistic the hellenistic astrology text is that one of the Phosphorus conditions, or when a planet really stands out, when it stands up and speaks, when it makes an appearance that speaks, is when it is for a couple days after it enters a new sign. That there's, you know, there's a there's an appearance, there's a bullhorn that goes off. Um, you know, there's a hey, look at me, I'm in a new sign. Um, and so that doesn't happen in the last degree. That happens immediately upon its entrance into a new sign, and which is yeah. And so there's there's that right, just like a birth is signaled, right? Mm -hmm. um, and well, so technically, a planet crossing over is both a funeral and a birth, right? If we're using length of life as a metaphor here, um, and you have, as I said, that that doubling down of of the 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 smaller division. Um, we we're talking about the duads, like the duad doubles down. Um, mm -hmm for the first two degrees and uh, 30 minutes um, on the sign. The one of the um, so the type of decanic division that you were talking about where you where the first decan of a sign has the quality of that sign. So the uh, in in the division by three, there's also a double down in the division by seven, not used so much in the um, in Western astrology. It doubles down in the division by nine. It also doubles down. So in a lot of these right. divisional charts, the first section of three, of seven, of nine, of 12, the very first section is a double down, right? So it's almost like the the most pure essence of that sign, at least in that approach then, that would be going in the direction of the most pure essence of the sign is at the beginning and on some level, 
when you're looking at it from that perspective of the subdivisions being of the same quality for the first whatever few degrees of the sign. Yeah. Well, and so it's interesting, right? Because you, you, so generally speaking, when a planet holds the same sign in multiple divisions, it's thought to be stronger. Um, right. Right. And, that, and that's called Varg, Varg, Vargotama. Right. When it's, when, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, a lot of times you just compare the normal uh, chart with like the D9 and that's enough for Vargotama. And there are actually a number of different like ascending titles like, oh, if a planet is the same in three divisions, then it's, you know, crowned with flowers. And if it's four, then, you know, it's on fire with awesomeness, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But as a, as a general idea, and this is, this is in the Hellenistic text, they're like, oh, if it's in, you know, if Mars is in Aries and it's in its duad too, then great. That's double Mars and Aries. Good. Right. Or it's compatible. Um, but, and so even though you have a double down with, you know, in multiple divisions early, you also have in the same text, if it's too early, it's, it might be pure and it might be unified, but it's incapable of effective action. Right. And that's, that's our, that's our baby, right? That's that perfect child, that infant. They haven't encountered any of life's problems yet. Their parents haven't managed to, you know, ruin, to scar them, scar their psyche yet. Kids at school haven't made fun of them yet. They're pure, but they're not capable. Right. They're still developing or still in their, the infant stage. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like this. I like what we've covered already. Um, one of the, there's actually, there's two other notes that I have that are going to lead us on separate tangents. One of the ones before I forget, I mean, one of the underlying questions though is sometimes I still wonder, and that's why I wanted to have a discussion with you about this and while we're doing this discussion, because I wanted it to be nuanced and because I myself some sometimes am still unsure where I could see it not just going either way, I'm fine with adopting. On the one hand, sh there is a stark difference between different signs. And even my approach to like rectification, for example, let's say, is that there's a pretty strong difference that you can, if you, if somebody says that they were born within a three or four hour time frame and there's two possible rising signs, like that's, that's something I can do where I think I can figure out and rectify a person's chart and tell them what rising sign they have, especially using whole sign houses where when the ascendant changes from one sign to the other, it changes all of the house placements in the entire chart. And to me, that's pretty um, stark looking at those two differences. But that being said, sometimes when there's planets at the very end of a sign, especially, or when the ascendant degree is at the end of the, so end of the sign, I do wonder sometimes, or I have instances where there's like a little bit of, a bit of uncertainty and I'm not sure if that's coming from other placements, or I'm not sure if the placement at 29 degrees is starting to pick up some of the qualities of the next sign. So we actually famously had this conversation very early on in our interactions, because at one point I remember you, your ascendant is at 29 degrees of cancer. I remember at one point wondering mm -hmm. if you actually had Leo rising. And this you, has, you this has been wondered before. Right. Well, and you shut that discussion down pretty quickly because you're like, no, I have cancer rising. And the ruler of my ascendant is the moon in Gemini, and I have J Jupiter in the first house. And I didn't know you very well. This had to have been relatively early on in our relationship. But um, I was also the only baby in the hospital. 
there nobody there <laughs> it wasn't like a, a really busy situation where there's all sorts of chaos going on. I was born in a small hospital. There's nothing else to do but notice me. Sure. So so they would have recorded the time pretty precisely is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So but there's just cases like that where it also came up, for example, even in the case of like Trump where his birth oh, certificate was released. That's such a nightmare, assuming- isn't it? Like 30 seconds it changes. Yeah, so this is an issue that we happen. It's a great example for that reason because it comes up in other cases where if you enter his data into your software just based on the time that's given, it's given as, you know, whatever the hour and whatever the minute is, but nobody records the seconds. And so when you actually enter in the data like that, what it ends up being is, you know, 12, 32 and 00 seconds. So the, the the implicit assumption then in almost everybody's case is that we're assuming that the person was born at the beginning of the minute rather than the middle or the end of the minute. I, I always enter 30 in solar fire. Oh, do you? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm much lazier than that. And I always just enter in zero unless it makes like a huge difference. But in Trump's case, it actually does because about 30 something seconds into that minute or so, I don't know how much it is. The ascendant actually changes signs and moves from 29 degrees of Leo to zero degrees of Virgo, so that there was a genuine question of, especially after the election and after he was, you know, won the presidency, much to many people's surprise, whether astrologers had been calculating the chart wrong or whether he was actually Virgo rising rather than Leo rising or what have you. And this topic then becomes more important in the question of can there be any overlapping qualities? becomes sort of crucial at that point because it really gets to the heart of some issues that we sometimes have with rectification when the ascendant or other planets are very very late in a sign. Yeah, right. Well, and so um so Ibn Ezra says yes, right? He says, right. you know, when a planet is at the end of a sign, it loses its strength and all of the powers in the sign it will enter next. Which doesn't, you yeah. know, we don't have to believe Ibn Ezra, um but he was a pretty good astrologer. <laughs> um and then you know you had a was it was the statement by us it was the serapio statement um was similar it was similar could you read that again yeah serapio said when a star chances to be within the first three degrees of a sign it has its strength in the preceding sign or if a star happens to be within the last three degrees of a sign it has the strength of its effects in the following sign but mainly when it's the sun or the moon and so he's so he's using he's probably using like a like the like you were saying the full three degree three degrees on either side orb. Yeah, it might be tied in with that whole thing where there was a whole separate thing in the aspect doctrine where they recognized both sign based aspects and degree based aspects. But then, of course, if you're using degree based aspects and you have a planet at the end or beginning of a sign, that means its orb is technically almost. Reaching outside of the sign, yeah. That, so, that's what that's what uh, Serapio and and um, uh, Ibn Ezra's statements both uh, seem to imply. They in it, what's interesting, I, and I don't generally think of uh, orb of conjunction like this, but they're almost like treating it like it's actually an orb or halo, and that nope, you know, because it extends outward from the body itself, you know, a degree or three degrees. That now that light is falling into the next sign and energizing it, which is um, would I, I I admit I hadn't thought of things like that. That would be a good rationale if you wanted to argue for Pyquarius's. 
right for cusps being something for there being something to cusps yeah well there's definitely you know i I think we've pretty firmly established there's it's it's unique territory you know that there is something going on and astrologers from different traditions and cultures and different points in the timeline all do treat it like there's something special going on there because it is it's the changing of a sign yeah yeah and i shouldn't phrase it like that because it's one of the things i want to get out of this episode is it's too far it's kind of stupid to just reject it and saying there's no such thing as sign cusps like that's too blanket of a statement and obviously the tradition and the practical usage is much more detailed and nuanced than that and i understand where that's coming from because it's coming from a place of frustration on the part of contemporary astrologers who are seeing this weird development happening in pop astrology and wanting to push back and say that astrology is more precise than that and typically you know there are boundaries between the signs and you need to calculate your full birth chart to really understand what's going on but once we get past that point and like over that initial hurdle there's a broader discussion among practitioners of astrology that's still legitimate discussion about what are what is the nature of sign cusps is there any overlap um or are there any things that could be perceived as qualitatively different that could be perceived as there being almost like an overlap or something of that nature yeah yeah definitely and so one of the so one of the things that i want to highlight is the difference I, I highlighted the similarity between it, what Ibn Ezra was saying and what Serapio was saying. Now I want to highlight the difference. So Ibn Ezra mm-hmm. only says that about planets which are in the last degree of a sign looking forward to the next, where he has a, a completely separate statement about planets which are early in a sign, which is, uh, and I'll repeat, I read it earlier, any planet that is positioned at the beginning of the sign is considered weak until it reaches five degrees away f- away from it, the cusp. And so it's saying it's weak, but it's not saying that it's looking back. So Ibn Ezra says a planet at the end looks forward into the next sign, and it's po- all of the power is in the sign it will enter next. But it doesn't. But he doesn't give the converse. He doesn't give us a planet that's early has its power in the sign preceding. There's a there's a directionality implied by Ibn Ezra, whereas okay. Serapio is saying the same um is saying there's a looking back and a looking forward right yeah that's an important distinction and that's probably actually really crucial so yeah i mean i to me i'd like to research this more because i'd like there to be more i'd like to i don't feel like i have a strong and hard conclusion and some of my whole wanting to do this was to explore the ambiguity in my own mind, and not to focus on him too much, but just to go back to this question and this example with Trump, for example, is a lot of people, um, you know, immediately it just seems obvious. Well, like, like of course he has Leo rising; he has twenty nine degrees of Leo rising, and everybody's focused on like Regulus being conjunct his ascendant as well as a fixed star in the heart of Leo, and many of the like stereotypical Leo type qualities, him exhibiting those very strongly. But when in in the post-election period, one of the things that I was trying to explore was just check all of my assumptions. And one of the things that did bother me was certain personality traits that he exhibited. And those were the things that were making me wonder if it wasn't zero degrees of Virgo, like this reported thing saying that he was kind of uh, like a germaphobe and that he didn't like to shake hands and that he would like wash his hands after doing so or try to avoid it. Which is so bizarre because he doesn't otherwise have any placements in Virgo, and that's type kind of a 
thing that you would more commonly, I think, astrologers might associate with Virgo. Oh, yeah. Um, and non-astrologers as well. Right. So, But in the end, ultimately, I don't think – I still feel okay saying that he has Leo rising, and that's where it came back to, Leo rising with Mars in the first house, the sun ruling the ascendant, with the sun being in Gemini, conjunct Uranus in the 11th, etc., etc. But I do wonder if that little weird sort of throwaway quality that he has personality-wise isn't getting picked up by something from being so close oh, to that border with Virgo. Right. That's really interesting. Right. So just so, because there's a Virgo quality doesn't mean it's in Virgo if we're using either Ibn Ezra or Serapio. Right. Oh, yeah, that, that's and, an and interesting that's take on is, it. There's stuff like that that sometimes makes me wonder or, yeah, there, there's other instances like that we could go into, but I want to use this to start a discussion like that nuanced discussion about that once we've 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 sort of pushed aside the pop thing a little bit and we've tried to clarify that then we can have more of like an open and genuine discussion about you know does that happen at all or are there instances where that does seem to be a genuine thing or can that be explained in some other way so that some other astrologer might say no it comes from this indication in his chart because that's actually the next and it's getting close to one of the final points which is we run into an issue with learning astrology that comes up pretty frequently where when you're learning astrology, sometimes you learn something and you identify with, especially in your own chart, or you learn about a certain placement that you identify with and makes sense. But then later on, it turns out there's another placement that indicates something very similar or indicates the same thing, but just from a different perspective. Yeah. The, the oh, that's where that's coming from. Yeah, so sometimes like you'll learn astrology and you'll think, oh, I really identify with that, but then you'll change, let's say, house systems or you'll change planetary rulership schemes or something like that, and you'll find a very similar signature that that can be interpreted in a very similar way, but it's coming from a completely different place or a completely different angle. Mm -hmm. And so that's something, it's like a nuance, it's a thing you have to be careful about when you're learning astrology because it's um, there's many overlapping techniques in astrology that can sometimes indicate similar things or sometimes indicate the same thing. And you have to, as a result of that, be careful that you're not thinking something is coming from one area when in fact it's coming from something else, which is actually saying that more strongly. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's that, uh, that's that's such an important point for so many reasons that I'm having a hard time fishing up the most important reason that that's important right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it just goes back to our core initial answer, which is every astrologer's answer for the initial question of if your sun is late in one sign, then you you may have other planets that are placed in the adjacent sign, which may explain why you think that you're both or why you resonate w more with one rather than the other. But that then leads us back to other important points that we should sort of um, make before we close this down, which is that in advanced astrology, the sun is not always the focus, but instead there can be things like the ascendant, the ruler of the ascendant, or even much more advanced concepts like in ancient astrology, the overall ruler of the chart called the master of the nativity, which can play a dominant role in indicating things like character and personality based on what planet it ends up being in a chart. And that can be another reason why a certain sign might be dominant in a person's chart or a person's personality that you might not think of otherwise. Um, yeah, or it becomes sort know, of relevant. Yeah, right. There, are, there are other ways that um, 
qualities can become prominent. You know, no matter what else is going on, if you have Mars conjunct the midheaven, you're going to read more Aries Scorpio. Um, right. And actually, I just want to um, pause for a second. And so you brought up my ascendant, right? So it's, a, yeah. it's 28 degrees. And so okay. um, it's certainly not in Leo. But if we, you know, if we look, if we look at it from Serapio's perspective or extend um, Ibn Ezra's perspective by half a degree, then we would say that although my ascendant is in Cancer and, and Jupiter is in Cancer, you know, the, the light of Jupiter or the orb of Jupiter's conjunction extends into Leo and just on a, you know, off the cuff thinking about my life level like i can see some of the light of that extending into leo it's not where it's coming from but subjectively in this moment if somebody told me that i would i would not argue with them at all they'd be like yeah and some people might think you're that because the light extends there but really you're coming from here and they would delineate cancer i'd be like that is where i'm coming from and people do say that about me is your right? You're, yeah. So your is your time two fifty five p.m. Yeah, it's actually been rectified to two fifty seven. Um, okay. Wait, two fifty seven. So that's even later. That because in solar fire, that's coming up is twenty nine zero zero for me at two fifty five. So if it was two fifty seven, then it would be like twenty nine and change, right? Yeah. Okay, sorry. I thought you. I thought you said twenty eight a minute ago. So I just wanted to clarify that. So oh, it's definitely there, twenty nine cancer rising. Uh, well, so I mean, rectifications are rectifications. I I think that's a yeah. good one. Uh, I won't go into the you know the five pros and the two cons for that. Um, but yeah, I think it's. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident that rectification. What's on the birth certificate is two fifty five, which I think might have been rounding down to the nearest five minutes. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't going to go there too much, but I, that's another one of those instances where I sometimes wonder, I mean, you're, you're one of my closest friends that doesn't fall in the bizarre thing that I have where most of the people I know are, are Leo rising. Basically you're like one of the few exceptions and it happens that you happen to have like 29 cancer rising. So it's one of those things where not that I'm wondering that your ascendant is in Leo at this point, but I do wonder sometimes if planets at the end of the signs don't start picking up some of the quality of the next sign. Yeah, that that's the best. Um, that's the that that's I, I didn't even think about that before we had this discussion. Just that little bit of light leaking into Leo makes a lot of sense to me. Also, sure, you know my Jupiter, uh, which is in um, the very end of Cancer with the ascendant. Um, regressed. It crossed the sign boundary back from Leo into Cancer the week before I was born. Right. Right. It's at twenty nine thirty nine Cancer, so it just moved from Leo back into Cancer. Right, because Kelly's born a week before me, and she has Jupiter and Leo. Okay. Right. So that's interesting in of itself because we talk about that a lot on the forecast about station points, especially like right now we have the Venus retrograde. Sort of connecting together two signs where it's stationed retrograde in Scorpio and then it's going to station direct in Libra, and how it's interesting that it's like overlapping between those two signs and almost like drawing them together as part of that Venus retrograde sequence and creating creating a, a sequence of events that's 
where both of those signs and the transition between them is somehow integral in a more dynamic way. Do we want to maybe, I know we're, we're, we've been talking for a while, do we want to take a second to maybe think about cusps when you do them in reverse with retrograde planets? Like, what do you mean? Well, just like, you know, we talked about the planet's standard motion, right? Which is direct, which is you go from the end of the sign to the beginning of a sign, right? Right. Um, but what about when you back up before the beginning into the sign before because this year has been full of that right we had mars backing up into from aquarius to the end of cap um we're we're soon to have venus backing up from scorpio to the end of libra and then this mercury retrograde which starts in three-ish weeks um backs up from sagittarius to the very end of scorpio right that yeah that's important because that might add a whole new dimension to retrogrades and understanding them and their role that astrologers don't typically take into account which is that the planet is going from the beginning and the younger phases of one sign to the end and like the older phases of another sign which then is actually interesting because it it reminds me that um the sun and the moon are the only two quote unquote planets that don't go retrograde they always go through the same order whereas all of the other planets have the ability to go backwards through the signs of the zodiac and the nodes of course always move backwards through the signs right they have to be contrary assholes right so but, yeah i mean that's interesting that could be a really um worthwhile line of research to sort of go down in terms of exploring this issue more right it's almost like um you know to use the the um the longevity thing right instead of like getting old and then dying and being born again it's having that Benjamin Button disease and then re or remembering a past incarnation, right? <laughs> because you go from like, I'm an infant and now I'm really old. And you, you do that, you do, you flip. Usually we're, you know, old, old, and then let's, let's give it another go. Let's do another life. Yeah. I love that also because retrogrades are often about going back to something that you thought you had finished earlier. And like returning back to and re revisiting something, and with those with retrogrades crossing sign boundaries, it it is really like you're going, you're retreading and going back to ground that um, was like old and had matured already and and reached a sort of stage of completion, but for some reason you're unexpectedly revisiting it. Right. It's like yeah, something happens which reminds you of when you were 23 and I don't know, you know, working at Subway or whatever, and you're like, oh, and then there's like a some sort of closure to that or you learn something from that and then you bring that back to the present yeah that's it. right and i i think we should also just mention the like the um so i got this from my my friend uh garitza sportson but apparently this is something that uh frowley teaches and that she got from him um but i always really liked it is when she was looking when she looks at planets near a cusp she looks at the uh dignity change and so Venus at the very end of Aries is in its detriment and then, but it's about to get into Taurus where it's going to, you know, it's a, she's about to come home. And so she would say, oh, you know, Venus is super excited um, at the end of Aries because she's just about to get to Taurus and is excited in the first degree of Taurus is like, oh, thank God I'm home. And then, you know, the opposite, like, let's say, um, so we've experienced this year, we've, we experienced it three times is venus going over the libra scorpio boundary where venus is like oh, i'm in scorpio this is or excuse me i'm in libra this is great 
I have my scales and my, you know, my my fine dress. And oh, now I have to go to Scorpio and hang out, you know, at the at the butcher's shop. Right. It's like, oh, this sucks. Right. But whereas Venus, what we're about to experience now is Venus's return back to Libra. Oh, I get to wash all this off from the butcher's shop and, you know, uh, and take up take up my scales again, get some clean clothes, et cetera, et cetera. And that that sort of is is that gate exciting to go through or you're like, oh, no, you know, the the fun times are over. I found that to be a very practical and also just kind of fun and descriptive way of thinking about planets that are about to change signs or have just changed signs. Yeah, it's I like that because it's more of that dynamic approach to astrology that sometimes you see in transits, but it also comes out especially in horary and that exchange between like especially with the current Venus retrograde, we talked a lot in the forecast episode about the idea of it like being an exile in Scorpio versus like coming home in Libra, as you as you just said. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. So in um uh in uh, the Prashara Geodesh, there there's um, a set of conditions called uh, Avasta, which is like how is the planet feeling, and so age is part of that. Um, mm-hmm. And then whether a planet is like sleepy or wide awake or angry or excited or depressed. Um, there's a there are a whole set of conditions for doing that, and that's we've kind of accidentally ended up doing Avasta by by just thinking about what it's like for a planet to transition, right? And so I right. you know in some sense like being right on a cusp is kind of confusing because you're between things, right? So and and then just to give his name the astrology you were talking about it came from your friend Garitza, but she was citing her teacher who is. Uh, John Frawley. Yeah, well, it was just something Garitza would do when she would interpret charts, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to steal that. That's great." And then we were talking about it, and, and I think I said I mentioned it to Kelly, and Kelly's, like, "Oh yeah, Frawley teaches that." So that's probably where Garitza yeah. got it. I was just, I was just okay. giving Pred credit. I didn't. We didn't have a sit down discussion where Garitza was like, "I made this up." You know, this is my patented thing. I just saw her doing, it and I was like, "Oh, I like that. I'm going to steal it." Yeah, and I was just mentioning it because there's two Frawleys. There's the 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 Renaissance astrologer, the traditional astrologer, uh, John Frawley, and then there's the Vedic astro- very prominent Vedic astrologer, David Frawley. Right. So sometimes people mix them yep. up. So I just wanted to clarify for the record who it was. Yeah, the Renaissance one, which is a, probably okay. a good distinction to make because I've been talking a lot of Vedic. So. Right. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think we've we've covered a lot. Like we we've done this pretty extensively. We've we've covered all the main points. I think that I wanted to cover, and again, I think the main point was just to discuss the issue with a lot of nuances and details, and to create sort of a foundation. So as a community, we can we can have future discussions about this. And there's going to be disagreements there's some astrologers that are are going to still very loudly want to contend that there's no that the cusp distinction is very strict and there's no anything between them there may be other astrologers that continue this this new development of saying that there is overlap it'll be interesting to see where that goes um but i at least wanted to just like outline the issue and some of the different possible solutions and possible scenarios yeah um and I'm happy to have been part of that. I I also want to facilitate that as a discussion rather than a yes no. Um, and we've given uh, multiple texts that give interesting and contradictory opinions. Right. Right. 
Yeah, as is as is the astrological tradition. Yes, that that is a that <laughs> that is uh, uh, an integral part of our tradition is arguing about you know half degrees here and degree you know maybe even whole degrees there. Does the orb ex- you know does the does that orb extend backward into the sign before or only into the sign to come, or neither? Right. Right. Yeah, and just dealing with nuance and dealing with the fact that the the world is nuanced and astrology is nuanced and you know as as with cusps, you know, sometimes there are no clear answers, sometimes you got to you got to deal with and you got to be okay with that sense of ambiguity and um yeah, that doesn't mean you can't come come down on a specific conclusion or or a specific answer, which is perfectly fine, but yeah, that's one thing that I've always tried to do on the podcast is explore both sides of different, especially tricky issues, so that people can then make up their own mind about which direction they want to go with that, knowing all of the the background and the sort of facts going into it. Yeah. Well, and also to a certain degree, when we're looking at any factor, this included, when does it matter and why? Does it matter for all, you know, for all of the different reasons you'd interpret the planet? Is it only matter in this one particular context? Is it more a horary thing? Is it more a natal thing? Is it more an electional thing? Does it apply to all three? That's right. These are the the questions we need to be precise. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like this is one of those issues where it's going to become more prominent and it's probably easier to study in natal astrology, but for the most part there's probably Areas where it's applicable in horary and electional and everything else as well. I mean, you mentioning horary actually completely reminds me of the consideration before judgment of if the ascendant is very early in a sign or very late in the sign. And that's sometimes interpreted by some astrologers like Lee Lehman, for example, who was my first horary teacher. And I always thought her interpretation of this was good because I would see it coming up in horary charts where if the ascendant is like super early in the sign, and you get a horary question from a client, oftentimes there's something premature about the question that's like not very well formulated yet, right. or all of the different circumstances and things that need to come into place for the outcome or the result to be to, to sort of um happen have not been put in place mm. yet. So that sometimes the question is premature, or there's something premature about the situation. Whereas if the ascendant is super late in the sign, um, that's sometimes meaning that there's something like overly mature about the situation so that it may have concluded already but sometimes the native either doesn't know or they haven't accepted that that's the case that it's already over oh yeah that's really interesting and that uh, also hori also makes me think of when you have cuz in hori you're always looking at the the application between a pair of bodies right um mm-hmm. when you know when does the ruler of the first house and the 10th when do they complete an aspect for for a career question right and so if one of those planets is at 29 and they won't complete an aspect until that planet at 29 changes signs that completely changes your interpretation right that there needs to be that if the perfection happens after the sign change that there's some sort of transition that occurs before the the matter can be brought to completion. Right, right. Yeah, or that yeah, that things it it it'll get. Uh, actually, I was just was it? I think it was actually in Ibn Ezra um, where he's talking about like yeah, it'll happen, but it'll total things will totally change, and then it'll happen. It'll happen in a totally different context than you're thinking. Sure, and that's so funny because on the one hand, it's like I I want 
most techniques, and I think a lot of techniques should be applicable across all four major branches of astrology, which is natal, electional, mundane, and horary. But then on the other hand, there sometimes are very different applications, and astrologers that specialize in horary sometimes have a very different approach than astrologers that specialize in natal because it's just like the dynamic is so different looking at a person's entire life versus looking at like a horary question that has a much often smaller lifespan or smaller shelf life. So there's both both overlaps between the branches and the things that should or should not be applicable to all branches, but there's also sometimes major differences. Yeah, I think each branch has its own um, nuances. I mean, Mars is Mars in all of them, right? You know, like the basics, like Saturn signifies what Saturn signifies in every branch of astrology. It's just right. you're it, like part of it is time, like you were saying. Like you're not, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, if we're if it's like where are my keys, that has only so long to play out. Whereas in natal, it's like you're going to live with that Saturn for eighty five years. That's yeah. yeah. Like Saturn doesn't have time, for example to mature and mellow out like you know there's a lot of stuff about how saturn becomes more favorable as a person ages under a lot of right. conditions you don't have 85 years to find your keys you're never gonna see saturn you know get <laughs> you know you're never gonna get that blessing of saturn because you put in the time um right and then one thing i find with um electional versus natal is you want to be viciously judgmental with electional yeah and and horror as well yeah. Um you need to know what like the ruler of that house is in order to give like a yes or no answer whereas in natal like it's easier like with the house division debate for example to see um if the midheaven if the whole sign 10th house is one thing but the degree of the midheaven is falling in another whole sign house how if you see a transit go through both that you'll see different manifestations of like the person's career doing different things if like Saturn goes through the whole sign 10th house mm -hmm. and then Saturn hits the whole sign MC in the 11th house, you'll see like the different um, career things being continued through the 10th and the 11th house. Whereas like in horary, sometimes you kind of need to know what the specific ruler is and therefore be able to answer the question, the affirmative or the negative. Yep. Yep. This astrology, yeah. this astrology stuff is complicated, Chris. Yeah. Astrology is complicated. I guess that is the conclusion to this episode. I don't know if I can make that the title. I still have to come up with a title for this episode. By the time I post it, I'll have come up with a brilliant title. So, um, let's see. Uh, falling through the cracks, getting lost in the cusp debate. Right, <laughs> that would be really. Good. Or in, into the into the abyss. Into the abyss. Uh, born on the interstice. Right. Um, um, the I mean, the spaces I mean, the between. Well, literally, right. we could get Lovecraftian, right? The spaces between the stars, you know, the the inky black places between the stars was one of, you know, H.P. Lovecraft's go-to. That's where the, you know, the the elder gods, the great old ones came through. It wasn't the bright okay. spaces in the sky, but the uh, the dark void between them. Right. Well, unfortunately, I'll probably just be stuffing keywords. So it's probably going to be zodiac sign cusps. Are they real or something? Pretty straightforward yep. like that. Yep. Well, yeah. And that's where. What can you do? Yeah, that's uh, that's why my, so that's why I'll, my titles have uh, absolutely no search rank. Right. Yeah. Well, you get off. You, you do. You do. Uh, you win um, creative points, though. Yeah. Well, and you know, my I I have I'm lucky enough to have um, 
patrons who are willing to support my eccentricity and non-search rank <laughs> style. Right. Uh, I love it. Okay. So, and and speaking of that, I want to mention at this episode, we were mentioned on the forecast episode that came out, will come out after this one, but I want to mention it here. And you mentioned at the beginning very briefly, but you're launching a new podcast soon mm-hmm. and you're getting ready to release episode one of that, right? Yeah. Sometime in the next week, I'm thinking Cancer Moon, Trying Jupiter, but I need to take another couple looks at the, at the elections. Um, yeah. So um, I'm tentatively titled Eavesdropping. And so I really wanted to um, share with people some of the nerdy discussions that I have with people who are fellow practitioners of astrology and astrological magic at two in the morning anyway. And so I wanted to mm-hmm. record some of those. Um, and so, the yeah, the first one uh, I've already recorded, it's with the astrologer and uh, goldsmith Tony Mack, who I've been doing astrological magic talisman projects with for a decade now, and that'll be out probably within the next week. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot for maybe one a month. Um, I'm not trying to become a full time podcaster, but I wanted to. I I don't know. I wanted to have talks with people. Um, you know, I've been a guest. I've been lucky enough to be a guest on a couple podcasts, but I I kind of wanted to turn the tables and be the host. So yeah, that's brilliant. I'm looking forward to to hearing that. I think that's going to be great. I love, Tony's you. awesome, awesome astrologer. So that's a great way to start off. Uh, so you're going to be hosting on your website, austincopic.com, right? Absolutely. Thanks for okay. reminding me to plug. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm excited that so many podcasts are taking off now, and and to welcome more people into it because not many people were doing it for the longest time, and now it's good to see some some great people coming in and starting to pick it up. So. People should check that out. Um, thanks a lot for for joining me for this today. Um, thanks to all of the patrons who supported this episode and other episodes. I mean, this is basically like we're giving a, an astrology. You're attending an astrology talk or an astrology class each week, and I think that was the the level of the sort of discussion we had here. Even though it was kind of casual and more of a discourse, you know, it's it's teaching astrology to people and having serious discussions about astrology once a week. So. Uh, normally, if you're going to attend an astrology lecture, you know you'd pay five or ten dollars, and that's kind of what all uh, of our patrons or, are doing. Or a lot more, yeah, or like fifteen or twenty dollars. So that's basically what our patrons are doing: is they're paying voluntary donation in order to support the production of the podcast, and that really helps uh, me to be able to do these types of episodes. Keep building new equipment. I'm building a podcast studio so I can do more in-person stuff. Like hopefully with you, Austin. Next time you're in town, yeah. Let's uh, you know, next year, uh, my the ruler of my perfection is in the ninth, so I imagine I'll be traveling, and I'm not that far yeah. away. Yeah, travel time. Last time you were here, I was just starting to get get set up. Last time you were in Denver for that tarot conference, <laughs> and that was actually when I launched the Patreon. So. Uh, things have changed. If you want to support this effort, you want to support the production of future episodes, go to the astrologypodcast.com slash subscribe for more information about the Patreon and some of the the bonuses and benefits you get for becoming a subscriber or a patron. Um, and I think I think that's it. Um, anything else you want to mention before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. Oh yeah, check out our oh. our Zodiac sign series. This is falling right in the middle of that. But if you're just finding this episode on its own, you would really want to listen to We've already recorded part one of our series where Austin and Kelly and I go through the individual meanings of each of the 12 signs of the Zodiac. We already went through the first six signs in part one, which I believe was episode 174 or 175 of the Astrology Podcast. And then in November, we're going to record part two 
for the last six signs, which is um, what Libra through Pisces. So that would be a great follow-up if you want to listen to other episodes related to this topic, and we'll be recording that again in the next few weeks. Yeah, looking forward to it. Awesome, cool. All right, well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Be sure to rate the show on iTunes if you want to show some support, since that always helps other people to find it. And that's it. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you next time.